0: Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals from the perspective of people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting laws and regulations. To stay up to date with all our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. Wayne Paselli and Marty Irby are with me today. It's good to have them both back. Wayne is the president and founder of Animal Wellness Action. Marty is its executive director and chief lobbyist in D.C. Uh, we have a fascinating Show today. A lot of times, we talk on the podcast about legislative issues, what's going on with various laws across the country that impact animals. Uh, this is an occasion where we are going to get philosophical. I guess is is the best way to describe it. To really talk about uh, some of the issues uh, that underpin a lot of the motivations that propel animal advocates forward. A couple of weeks ago, we interviewed. Uh, David Brooks. And during our conversation with David about his book, he referenced uh, a book written by his wife, uh, Taya Brooks Pryback. And the focus of the book seemed so interesting that I immediately began conspiring uh, with uh, him and others to get her on the show today. And I'm so grateful uh, she has agreed. Her book, uh, Enter the Animal, uh, just came out February 2021, published by uh, the Sydney University Press. Full title is Enter the Animal, Cross Species Perspectives on Grief and Spirituality. It's easily available on Amazon. So I just want to say a great big animal wellness action. Welcome uh, to Taya. So thanks for joining us, Taya.
1: Thank you for the invitation and thank you for all your work for animals.
0: Your work in particular really struck me as carrying the message of why bother with animals forward to a great degree. So what I hope in this conversation is just to kind of understand you know, the major themes of it and to be able to give our listeners some good ways to respond to those who might say, they're just animals right so so why yeah. are you spending so much time and effort <laughs> money on animals, particularly in a world where the human condition seems more precarious than, than ever. So if we can you know, get your perspective on that, encourage a few folks to check out your book uh, on amazon.com uh, and come away with a greater understanding of the animal as an, as an, an emotional creature. Uh, I think we've done a lot of work for our brief time uh, together. D- to kick us off, the subtitle Perspectives on Grief and spirituality. Grief seems very specific among the panoply of emotions animals might experience, and spirituality seems to be a very generalized or at least amorphic description of how one as an animal or a human might relate to the world. So if you don't mind, Taya, uh, let's talk about animal grief first um, why did you focus on grief not only uh, as the focus of your your phd work but in this book as well
1: yeah uh well it's good to start with grief because i started with grief and then um as i was learning about grief and stuff there i got this idea for spirituality i had kind of two aha moments but we can talk about that later because they actually are related um but um what i actually wanted to know more about animals i was like an activist and my my advocacy seemed to completely inefficient you know i would tell people what's going on because when you first realize what's going on and i turn vegan immediately practically overnight and you want to tell it to everyone but Then <laughs> you kind of realize no one really wants to know about it and i thought well there's something wrong in either my presentation or in, in the information that I've got and I'm, you know, passing on. And so I said, well, let's sit down, let's let's focus on a project, and that's going to kind of force me to look at various aspects. And, and so I enrolled in this PhD program, and um, it was just the best thing I've ever done. It was fascinating. I'm still amazed. Uh, the topic of grief was kind of coincidental. I um, started off with something else. Uh, um, and, and then we kind of decided grief was, um, was a better, a sort of more specific. Um, and at the same time, it's, you know, it's an emotion. So I was able to kind of look at all these aspects of, you know, emotionality in animals. And it was useful from that perspective. But um, so the purpose, eventually, of the book was to build a theoretical framework for a more, you know, realistic and kind of fair Consideration of grief across species, because before that it was all a bit messy. You know, people go like, "Yeah, I'm sure all the animals feel grief," you know, and then there'd be all these assumptions about how it's probably not like ours, you know, because supposedly they don't know they're mortal, supposedly they don't have the concept of death, and so on. And there are all these philosophical questions that people bring in that are not really directly related to grief. Uh, as you know, other people agree too, as I found later. So I thought, let's have a closer look at, this, at these questions, and I spent a while doing that, and you know, it's been interesting. And my conclusion is that grief is first and foremost an organismic response to loss, um, and that grief differs on an individual level rather than on a species level. You know, at least for mammals and birds, but probably wider. And so there's no such thing as like human grief uh, or cow grief. It's, it's you know a bit like when you break your leg. Like what does a broken human leg feel like? Does it feel different from um, a broken dog leg? I mean differences exist, of course. I can have a higher um, tolerance to pain than you, but but it's an, on an individual level. And same with grief. You know it will depend on our psychological constitution, the nature of the lost relationship, like who we lost, you know, and, and things like that. What did that person mean to us? So, um, you anyway, know, I had no idea that there was so much information about other animals already out there. And, you know, about us too, because, you know, as I was learning about them, I was also learning about us, you know, the human mammals, <laughs> if you want, because that's what we are. And, and that's what people are saying, you know, people, People that have read the book, they say that they learn a lot about themselves as well as, you know, other animals, and that's empowered them in in both ways, kind of. So I trust that when people learn more about, you know, other animals, about how complex they are, you know, psychologically, socially, um, and in other respects, they're completely comparable to us in just about anything that matters. And then, you know, we will be better equipped to, to change our practices and, and our views, especially, because that's very important. You know? We've been conditioned to not take other animals seriously, you know, to not take their emotions seriously, to, to, to not take their interests seriously, or, you know, even recognize they have some, you know, emotions and interests. And we've, we've been misled. And, and that's rapidly changing. You know, people are tired of it. they actually actually them pissed off. You know, I had this lovely experience once in the streets. I don't know if you want me to drag on with this or you have other questions. But anyway, I like to do different things, you know, like sometimes I like to join activists in the streets. I like to cook vegan food. I like to, you know, read and write. And so it's kind of you get a broader perspective on, on all these issues. And, and so we did this um, uh, video challenge event. It's like when you go into the street and you uh, offer people like a couple of dollars or a muffin. And in exchange, they agreed to watch a short video. And this video shows some, you know, standard procedures from animal husbandry, you know, nothing extreme. I mean, it's pretty extreme, but it's legal. It's just something that, you know, your state will have gone through regardless of where you are in the world. And so this guy at the beginning, he was like being silly and making fun of us. But eventually he sat down and watched the film and he was furious. You know, he was going, why do not we know about this? Why don't they tell us about this on the TV and so on? It's just like something we don't want to do to cause pain. And more and more people are realizing what's going on. And, you know, they're standing up and they're saying, I don't want to support this. You know, I trusted the system and it's normal to trust the system. Like it's a big world. You know, we can't monitor everything. So we have to trust the system to some extent. But, you know, we've been betrayed. And uh, people are realizing it. And they're saying, it's my money. I'm not going to support this. You know, I'm going to go buy tofu or whatever. And people work hard for their money. They kind of care where it's going. And we do want to do the right thing. In the end, you know, we see ourselves, everyone, I mean, there's some exceptions, but generally speaking, we see ourselves as good people, as moral, and we try to do the right thing. Right. So so, when you, um,
0: I'm sorry, um, Tanya, finish your point, but where I want to go next is, uh, we, I've seen, and, and they're not uncommon memes on social media, where a uh, a service animal whose owner has died uh, will lay, prost- you know. Uh, I always want to say prostate, but it's prostrate um, on on the grave of of his his former human friend, right? And we've seen dogs cry. Uh, When when you look across the rainbow of species, uh, how does grief manifest itself among other kinds of animals?
1: Well, see, um, that is um, a point that I'm trying to make in the book that um, we have different expressions of grief, but that doesn't mean that I mean, they're not a direct reflection of, of of the feeling. So you've got the feeling of grief, and you've got the expression of grief. And if someone is not showing an expression that is recognizable to you as an expression of grief, that doesn't mean that um, that it, they're not grieving. Like we don't really know very much about other animals' expressions if they are, you know, species specific. We have to, well, first point out if there is such a thing as a, you know, dog style of grieving, of, of you know, showing grief. I don't mean feeling grief, but showing grief. We don't really know about that as much as uh, we think we do. We just like go, uh, well, that dog's doing this or that monkey's doing that. And um, are they really grieving? Like kind of it looks weird. We don't do this. And then there's this we, you know. And what people don't realize, and that's not the point I'm trying to make, is that there is no such thing as a human universal way of doing things. I mean, like we know that from anthropology, from all the mistakes that they made in post, if you want. And so, uh, you know, and so I I dedicate a section of a chapter to that because I thought it was really interesting, you know, just to show the variety. You know, it's a selection, obviously, uh, to show a variety of expression in, in, uh, within you know, human cultures. And you have stoic cultures that are not supposed to show any kind of emotion of you know, physical pain or emotional pain. Uh, and then you have very expressive cultures. And uh, then have, you have two lines in this expressive cultures. You know, some are supposed to show extreme sadness or wail and cry, and the whole village comes over and, you know, they wail and cry. It doesn't mean that everyone's grieving. You know, maybe that woman down the road doesn't care at all if that person's dead or not. But, you know, she's supposed to come over and do it with the others. And then you have other cultures that are supposed to be extremely happy, you know, or, or show cheerfulness and, and dance and, you know, get drunk and things like that. And, and this is just a way... Um, that they express is a cultural you know, way of expressing um, um, grief and, uh, or a ritual if you want. And other animals, you know, can have similar... Dif- I mean, there may be similar differences in, in other animal species as well. But, you know, a lot of the time animals live in conditions where, you know, it's like life and death. It's showing vulnerability, either physical vulnerability or emotional vu- vulnerability can be dangerous so it is quite possible they try to hide it more than sort of we do
0: yeah wayne, and, uh, when,
1: but sorry
0: no 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 that's great but, i was going to ask wayne to reference uh the famous photograph of a grieving kangaroo that uh mr brooks talked about a couple of weeks ago and to get your thoughts from your research wayne and, and the books you've put together on what you think of when you think of animal grief
2: well you know I began my activism in the 80s, and there was this notion at that time, advanced by many uh, defenders and apologists of the status quo, that animals were just these kind of evolutionary beings in some endless quest for mating opportunities and other biological needs. And they were almost like automatons, that they didn't have a range of emotions. And it just strikes you in a daily experience with animals as absurd. I mean, animals clearly have an incredible range of emotions and you think of grief, you know, we we have so many stories. I I can't remember all the details of what I wrote about in the bond on this one incident, but there was a, a Japanese professor who walked every day with his animal to the train station. I believe the dog's name was Hachiko and he, then the dog, at the end of the day, would come greet him at, at the train station you know, at the, near, near the home, and they'd walk back home together. And one day the guy died at work. He had a heart attack at work, and the dog basically did a vigil for, for weeks and months, waiting for, for his, his human companion. And it was just an example of grief. It was an example of loyalty. It was an example of caring. And animals have all of these emotions and they also have trauma. You know, I mean, trauma is a variation. You think of these elephants, and I wrote about this, that these elephants who were victims of poaching and they lose family members, these young male elephants would kill rhinos. They would literally knock the rhinos over and stab them with their tusks. They were uh, angry, they were violent, because they didn't have parental influence. And I think of all of these emotions for animals and they're so obvious and so evident and Taya you know, has captured a lot of it in her comments, but grief is just one manifestation of the emotions of animals. Marty?
0: Yeah, Joe, I was just gonna add, you know, the most recent example, I think we've seen the, the famous photo of Sully, the dog that was with former president George H.W. Bush when he died you know, in front of the coffin at the funeral, and it really went viral, it says a lot about the, the companion animals that we have, their emotions and grief, just like what Wayne was talking about. I think I've actually seen that movie, Wayne, that you're talking about. Um, it was really good.
2: It's it just as an example of, you know, how much these creatures actually care for us that people don't really think about. But it clears the path for humans to cause harm to animals when you – when you strip them of these characteristics of feeling and emotions. And if you just think of them as things, as biological machines, then you can do these terrible things to them, whether it's factory farms or killing kangaroos. The Australian government is just great at turning kangaroos into pests and and impediments to progress. And I think this is all part of the mix of how people exploit animals is, is to deny their their own individuality.
1: Right. Absolutely. Um, I, was, <laughs> I wanted to say something about dogs, but um, yeah, the kangaroo um, issue is uh, really interesting that picture and the denial of. of um, of uh, grief and emotions from the scientists. i mean like that guy wasn't even an expert that guy probably didn't know anything about grief you know the so-called expert scientist this was called upon. i think he was a pathologist or something but um you know the first response was well you know as you said before wayne like yeah he was probably trying to mate with her or you know he probably killed her and you know stuff like that but that's you know they've been conditioned to think like that you know for the entire you know 20th 20th century, people weren't allowed to think that animals have emotions, let alone talk about it. You know, they would lose their jobs, they would lose their careers, and you know, this is something that we are still trying to get over. You know, because current people, as you know, have been students of those people that you know practically couldn't talk about this at all, and there's still there's still this idea uh, hanging on, and, and we are trying to battle and sort of you know go come on like you know open your eyes obviously animals have emotions and but the dogs that you mentioned I actually thought about that because I was um it was really fascinating when I discovered um when I read about this so-called suicidal dogs have you heard of suicidal dogs you know those dogs that lose their you know, human companion or some other companion and they just kind of don't seem to get over it and they kind of end up dying because they refuse water and so they end up dying and I realized that um, they have so-called complicated grief and this is an actual thing in, in you know grief studies and people are experiencing this of uh, human people and other people we have some normal grief when you know the, the period of acute pain lasts for a little while and then it starts to recede and then you have a um, complicated grief where this um, um, period of acute grief just kind of drags on and, and you can't get over it and eventually you can you know even die and uh, um, the interesting thing about it is that again it's a completely organismic thing like it's not going to help you to know that the other person is dead you know you can know it but you still have this reaction and researchers have done some experiments on humans but you know, it's it would be the same with other animals because we share those brain structures, and and they realized that uh, in people with complicated grief, you have brain areas linked to rewards activating alongside areas linked to pain processing, whereas you know, with uh, people with acute grief, you only have the pain processing area. So you get quite literally stuck in the organism again, crave, it's an organismic thing, craves the last subject as it may crave an addictive substance. And certain developmental contexts make individuals more prone to complicated grief. And many non-human animals, as I you know, realize when I start to think about this, especially in captivity, may fall into this vulnerable categories. Um, I don't know if you want me to explain this, but it's, a, it's I mean, uh, to, to elaborate on it. But it's a real thing for animals and uh, and, and, and the developmental um, conditions that we raise this um, many animals that found themselves in because we forced them into this may, may uh, make them more prone to, to this awful uh, feeling that you well, know, even kill them in humans- the end. Yeah, yes. well, you
0: know, even even you know human animals, you know, um when um uh, a a wife dies it it's typically typically the case that the average life expectancy of of the widower will be will be shortened, you know, the the grief yes. will in some way expedite uh, the deterioration mm-hmm. uh, of him as a biological unit. Now you know, maybe not surprisingly to, you know, to a lot of uh, wives who may be listening to this, wives actually seem to be uh, somewhat uh, elongated in their lives if a a male spouse dies. Uh, But men, Mm -hmm. maybe without the capacity to deal with grief in more complicated ways, if I can Mm -hmm. risk a a broad generalization, seem to suffer from what you're talking about, you know, a, a complicated grief that can't be processed in intellectual ways to the point where its effects are mitigated.
1: Yeah, with uh, I think with this, all the couples, a lot of the time, um, they have this so-called merged identities, you know, they've lived together for such a long time, and like the person see them, sees themselves as, you know, me plus this other person. <laughs> I mean, this can happen um, with, you know, younger people as well, you know, when someone sort of, um, you know, I-, I am David's wife, I'm not just me, but you know, you see yourself as this Thing. And it's called merge identities, and and that that happens a lot with people that spend together like fifty years or something, and it happens a lot in captivity as well. I mean, in in, in non-human animal captivity, because um, you know a lot of the time animals are not given you know the opportunity to to have a wider um social circle and and to spread their emotional investments around you know like you take two dogs okay you take two dogs instead of one dog because you want them to be together while you go off to work and wherever you're going and these two individuals have each other and that's all they have i mean they have you but not you know always and uh, or even sanctuaries you know for farm animals and, and other things there's a lot of this kind of uh stuff where where animals can uh develop this merged identity you know unintentionally but it happens and when the other person dies then it's really hard and a lot of animals it, especially in sanctuaries you know come from really difficult uh past situations you know with psychological abuse with physical abuse so it may not be all that easy to form again you know they're not automatons you can't just put the animals together and expect they're going to be friends or you know whatever um yeah. you know they they you know they have barriers and it's hard for them to you know just make friends with people a lot of the time and so you have to consider but all this kind of shows how you know like us are how how we don't we don't watch for these things normally you know we give them food and we give them water and they'll okay be happy right you have a little bit of space to play around but you know if you look underneath under under the surface it's just like they exactly like this.
0: I yeah, go ahead Wayne and then I'll follow up after you
2: Sure, thank you, uh, Joe. I think about this in the context of some of our campaigns. I think of wolves, wolves being killed in Wisconsin that we spoke about some time ago in uh, basically a a 50 or 60 hour period, uh, Wisconsin hound hunters killed one quarter of the state's wolves. When you kill one quarter of the state's wolves, you're killing one or two or three pack members What about the effects on the families of the survivors? I mean, these are the brothers and sisters, the alpha females killed. How does the alpha male react? I mean, this has has to be a trauma. And I also think in a different way about mink. We've been working on mink farming, a subject that I want us to cover in a future podcast soon. Mink are wild animals. They are largely solitary. They are semi-aquatic. They are placed in cages on factory farms, so they never get to touch water. They're overcrowded with with so many of their kind and their solitary animals. And we have learned that they are incredibly vulnerable to COVID-19, to the Mm -hmm. SARS COVID virus. And is that a consequence of their being so stressed out and so vulnerable? We know that when we're stressed, disease is much more likely to afflict us. And I think we don't, we don't even think about this with factory farmed animals. And then you put a, put a wild animal in a factory farm situation, there has to be an assessment of the emotional component of our treatment of animals. It's not just the physical brutality, the physical harming and cutting or clubbing or shooting. There's even more to the suffering that these animals endure.
1: Absolutely. Like, I mean, like my sheep live a great life, right? It's one of the best possible lives they could have. But we've had rain for two days and they have a lot of space here, but they were cooped in in their barn because they hate the rain. And they were so anxious and miserable. And they were like pacing around and stuff. And and they have, you know, an optimal environment. You know, think about all this other animals that don't, you know, even have that, that they're confined, as you're saying, no, it's, it definitely is. And we, we are paying, like, generally speaking, we are paying more attention to the body. I mean, like, for a long time, we have this cognitive stuff going like, oh, we, you can change everything, you know, by just thinking it differently, like, <laughs> right. Um, and now, Absolutely. obviously, it's, it's, it's um, you know, showing that that is not quite the case, you may be uh, changing your thinking with while you're changing your body, that's a bit more likely, but um, it's yeah, not quite the other way. So when you and I were
0: corresponding prior to the podcast, I mentioned in one of our emails, what I believe to be a broad misuse of the word dominion. And this has come up in some other podcasts. Um, Human exclusivism a term you use in your book to describe what I believe to be, if I'm interpreting it correctly, uh, the failure to acknowledge that other animals besides humans can have these emotions, is that a, a uniquely Western uh, phenomenon? How do you see that permeate through global
1: cultures? Well, um, <laughs> have you ever heard of the weird population? That's us. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's an acronym for Western industrialized, uh, we, uh, educated, democratic, and rich. And uh, apparently is the weirdest slice of the population, of the human population on the planet. And we are different just about anything to others. And others are a little bit more sensible about just about anything, including, you know, seeing other animals as other nations. So, yes, it's very Western. Um, And even this, um, you know, the, the self, seeing the self as an independent thing, you know. Once you reach adulthood or whatever, you're independent and you're all alone. Basically, that's not what they're saying. They're saying you're strong and you know you don't need anyone. But in the end, we realizing that we really do um, do need others, uh, and it's not quite the way. And and other other cultures have uh, 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 the tendency to see the self more as an interdependent, which is uh, closer to what actually is happening with the self you know from a developmental perspective and also later I mean we are social animals after all and we will always need this this kind of sociality and what the west has done with this dominion and the separation is just it's cruel it's cruel to you know the rest of the world. It's cruel to other animals it's cruel to the planet as we you know realize it and it's cruel to ourselves I mean we're social animals that's what we are we are you know we are supposed to be together and to be nice to each other and again there was this um, myth about evolution including you know for humans but especially for other animals that it's all about you know blood and fighting and copulating and stuff like that but it turns out that Uh, cooperation is is uh, is much more prevalent in all animal societies and that's how we move forward you know by stepping together and doing things together and other animals you know do what they can to avoid conflict and this is what the wall talks about this but others as well broom and this is you know conflict is not predominant day. It, it's costly. It can be costly. You know, people that are thinking about this stuff from their little cozy offices don't really kind of capture what it is like to be out there. You know, you don't want to go out and just fight with everyone. I mean, it's crazy and mm. they don't do it. Right.
0: This may be a good time because I think we're getting close to it to talk about the other part of your focus. And that is spirituality. Now, it's one thing for, I think, many people to impute to animals the ability to feel complex emotions like grief. But I think if we were to talk to the average person maybe who hasn't thought much about this kind of subject, the notion that animals might have a spiritual component to their lives is, is, is out there. Right, I mean, I mean, you see what I'm saying. It, it seems yeah. uh, implausible that something that we we might broadly categorically see as a uniquely human future feuch- feature uh, could be found among animals. What do you mean by spirituality, and where do you see it in non-human animals?
1: Okay, um, I think when it comes to these areas so of spirituality and religion. Or we, you know, human and other animals have the propensity to first communicate with agencies in our environment, and second to interpret things. The first one leads to spiritual engagement, in my opinion, and the second one leads to various philosophies and cosmologies, including religions. Um, so now I haven't, I won't pretend that I've solved, you know, all the mysteries of our spiritual lives. But what I've done is to articulate. An alternative view that I think makes more sense in terms of how we are in the world and how our bodies and minds work. And because we share these things with other animals, this alternative view also includes them you know, as subjects capable of, of, of these spiritual experiences. And I make this distinction between religion and spirituality. Uh, religion will include a strong cognitive closure component and interpretative component. Uh, whereas spirituality, I see as an affective opening. So spirituality is a communication with agencies in our environment, and by agent, uh, in this context, I mean anything that is able to speak to me, you know, that affects me, regardless of uh, whether this phenomenon has agency on its own or not. Like a rock, for example, you wouldn't think of a rock as something that has agency, but if it speaks to me, then it will have. Um, these agencies, and it may be easier to understand the kind of level of experience I'm talking about if you think of, like you go to a place and this place feels like good or not, has, has good vibes or bad vibes. And so you're experiencing something, you feel it, but you don't really know what's going on. But your organism is communicating. And this is the kind of level I'm talking about. It's um not very easy to explain, but <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. But it is this more immediate uh, level of being of relating, and um, I had two aha moments as I was saying uh, that that sort of brought about this thinking. Um, one was when I first learned about the brain's automatic categorization system, we can go into details about that later, Um, and its relation to to the experience of awe. There's been some theoretical work done about that, and it's very interesting. But second, when I was learning about these attachment relations that that I didn't talk about, but that uh, basically adds the base of of, um, um, of, um, the discussion on grief. And you know, attachment relations are vital to to certainly to all mammals and to birds. And we are finding that others have these attachment relations to crocodiles and so on. And they are they are formative. Like we we we've our systems, our brain, and our psychobiological regulation is not fully developed yet when we are born or hatched. And this develops in interaction with the caregiver. So um it's the way our brain shapes and our system for, you know, how we're gonna deal with stress, where, whether we're gonna be sensitized to things or not, this all develops in in this interaction with our primary caregiver, you know, the mother or, or someone else. And this is a very important and really interesting point. And so we are conditioned to, I mean, like we, we have this propensity to communicate, and this is obviously this starts before we are able to to, to think about things, you know, um, it starts in the womb, as soon as we are basically conceived, we, we are communicating with this space around us. And, and, and this space and later the caregiver will, will be affecting us on uh, multiple levels. So like we are lying there, cuddling each other with our mom and stuff. And there will be all these agencies going you know, from us to them, and from them to us. You could think of them as little arrows going backwards and forwards, carrying information, carrying messages. And we can't see them. You know, we don't think about them, but they're there and there. We can feel them and there and they, they shape us. And same goes for, you know, adult cuddling and stairs. And so I started to think that that's also how we communicate with other implicit agencies around us. That it's all really just an extension of the way our organism as an inherently relational, re, sorry, relational entity communicates um, and engages with the world. And then when I say just, I uh, you know, just an extension, I don't mean it in any diminishing or derogative way. You know, it doesn't take anything away from the human. I think it's really quite amazing that some of the most beautiful things in life are also very simple and, and within reach of, of all of us. So I envision this capacity to communicate with space, with its agencies, invisible, intangible, and so on, as a possible explanation for our embodied spirituality, you know, how we can have spiritual feelings and relate spiritually, uh, you know, to let our entire body enter this dance with whatever it is that is speaking to us and pulling us into this, you know, interaction that that, that we feel at this deep um, organismic level. And um, I think we can be pretty good at this, but a lot of the time we get distracted with the business and, you know, human life and the human world, and we don't pay much attention to, to this other, you know, also very evocative and elo- eloquent. If you let me, let me offer what I believe level. maybe yeah. once,
0: uh, an example of what I, th- mm. what I, th- I think you're saying, and then, and then mm. certainly your perspective as well. So, you know, there, there are many times when I'll, I'll communicate with my dog, whose predominant emotion is hatred, anger, and contempt for everyone in the world but me, but but the dog and I will be together. Let's say we're going to bed, and, and there will be a moment when certainly we're not exchanging words, but mm-hmm. but I almost feel a, 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 an inarticulatable resonance with the dog, and, and, and I feel like we're kind of bonding in a way or communicating in a way uh, that doesn't rely on any kind of quantifiable or measurable uh, observable language. Um it, The same way when perhaps a cat is laying in the sun in a soft spot and 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 it is having what may be construed if I'm understanding you correctly is kind of a spiritual connection with with that environment. Am I am I anywhere in the ballpark of what you're trying to yes,
1: say? Yes, yes, yes. I mean it's really kind of hard to speak about it. That's why I mean I'm still trying to work out how to. How to articulate it in a way that is, um, you know, so people don't have to read the entire book for it. And I just recently received an invitation for Aaron to write something. And I thought that would be an interesting opportunity to, to put this into an essay that it's not short and concise and in plain language. Uh, but yes, that is the, 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 the level that we're talking about. My, my main point is that you have religions with interpretations and that is really i mean like we all interpret things in life all animals you know do this we all do cognitive closure stuff we want to know what's happening around us we want to even if like we're wrong about what's happening around us but we need a kind of explanation because it makes us you know feel safer the world becomes a little bit more predictable and we all do this all animals um not just humans and so religion has this strong component of that you know the the interpretative stuff of course there's also emotion involved in religion uh whereas this spirituality this is a more immediate way that the body communicates we still feel it we perceive it but we're not sort of reflectively directing it we're kind of letting the body be and do their own stuff and I think that even though I'm not very articulate right now, I think that people, if they stop just to think for a second, now, or rather to feel it, they, they will know what I'm talking about. Do do you? I mean, do you? Well,
0: Marty? I I think. Wayne, I do. do you know what Wayne? I'm talking Wayne about? Do you?
1: <laughs> do you feel it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wayne Wayne is wearing a white t-shirt, and his hair is such that whenever I'm not looking at him directly, he looks like Simon Cowell.
1: Okay, let's put it a different Let's Let's talk about the brain categorization stuff, which is, yeah. which is how I got to this in the first place. So, um, we have this lovely thing that's called the uh, automatic categorization system that our brain does, and um, it, it helps us navigate in life and simplify light and stuff, and stuff like that. Um, um, this uh, categories and concepts are based on experience and, and on learning. And um, once we develop this context with this category, we process sensory data through this acquired concept. So, for example, you, you learn the concept of a table, you know, like a service with, um, with two legs or whatever, or four legs, sorry. <laughs> and we will then recognize other tables as tables, even if they look different. And just about everything in life follows this pattern so we learn about uh, it's also very vulnerable to prejudice that's how we end up seeing two comparable to completely comparable individuals like a pig and a dog um, you know in two different lights. lights one is food the other one is pet but um so we we learn these categories and and for human or like for human awe, or or awe generally but in the human context they're theorizing that you can be sitting somewhere or standing or whatever, walking, and you experience this thing, there's this encounter between you and and some phenomenon that doesn't kind of fit into any kind of category. And we're talking about automatic processes here. And it doesn't fit not just because it's not known, not familiar, but it could be so broad psychologically that you just can't squeeze it into anything with boundaries. And then you have this moment of tension and again, this happens at the completely automatic level. You're not reflectively directing it. You have this moment of tension, and that is when you experience awe, that it, it generates this awe thing. And you can then kind of try to get out of it as soon as you can, especially if it's something frightening, or you can engage with it and you know enter this dance with animacy, as I call it. Wayne,
0: um, I I do want to get Wayne and I'm, I am contractually obligated to turn to Wayne every five minutes. So uh, I'm I'm seven minutes into the last time I called on him. So so Wayne, uh, how, how is this issue hitting you?
2: Well, you know, I, I mean, I think that this whole broader issue is that we, we have not scratched the surface of our own understanding of human emotions and, when we then start thinking about the complexity of this issue with animals, I mean, we're just in an early stage of assessing this. So I think, you know, Taya is doing important work in focusing uh, on this whole category that we as a cause have not spent enough time on, and we as a society have long been in denial. I mean, I'm just going back, you know, to the human health, mental health issues. We didn't even treat this as a serious human health concern for a very long time. And now when we're really talking about grief and other animal related feelings, it's just a big category that we need to unpack as, a, uh, as individuals and as a society.
0: And have you seen any examples in any of your research uh, where and this maybe goes more towards the the religion uh, side of spirituality that's the focus for so many people, but have you seen anywhere anything that indicates animals might be in search of a higher power? Do do you ever see worship of of a rough kind in the animal kingdom? Um,
1: There are people that are working on the religion aspect, but I didn't actually pay a lot of attention to that because I was interested more in this uh, organismic, emotional aspect yeah. of it. But um, um, I don't know. That's a complex one. And uh, look, I'm not looking for high power. You know, this is, again, something you know, an assumption that all humans are doing that. Oh, well, I'm not, for example. And there are lots of other people that are just happy to be here to, you know, to talk to trees. <laughs> I know they're not responding to me back, but, you know, like to, to just be here embedded in, in, in life um, on this planet. And so, like, I'm not looking for higher powers. And I don't know if other animals are looking for higher powers. Wayne, have uh, you know seen anything
2: like that? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, well, Tay. Yeah, because Wayne No, is,
1: no, um, no, no, that's fine. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's a fascinating question, Joe. You know, when you do think of differences between humans and other um, animals, between humans and non-human animals, this is one area where we clearly throughout so much of human history have had had this quest for understanding and this faith in higher powers. It has marked, you know, human behavior in all different cultures and societies over time, over millennia. Um, and... You know, Christianity is a couple thousand years old, but paganism and belief in many gods has been a, a big part of, of, uh, of humanity for an awfully long time. I haven't heard much about it in animals, uh, but again, I don't think that we need to have equal uh, abilities to think through questions in order to grant animals more moral consideration. There are definite differences between humans And non-human animals, but I'm just not sure those differences are relevant in determining moral worth. And I think, you know, that was Peter Singer's point, another Australian in writing Animal Liberation, you know, nearly, uh, you know, 45 or 50 years ago, that it's the capacity to suffer that's the most relevant moral criterion. And suffering clearly has emotional dimensions that we are denying and that animals uh, feelings and emotions need to be factored into our calculus, our moral calculus of how we wield our power over other creatures.
0: Sure. And and, and absolutely. And uh, I, I hope not misconstrued was, was my point to the extent that, no, that I, I would agree with I, you completely, you know, with you, I wasn't, that.
2: no, I, I think it was a, I think it's a, a, a really important and interesting question. I just wanted to make sure that, that, when people do believe that there are differences between humans and other animals, that we don't just say, well, that means that we can do whatever the heck we want with animals. That, that yeah, is yes. not.
1: another thing that uh, humans seem to think is that other animals don't have any moral codes. You know, they don't have any rules about anything. Well, they mm-hmm. do actually, you know, they're not just like, you know, acting randomly. They have very strict behavioral codes in their societies. They may not be like they, ours. Again, who's they, us, right? They, and our humans yeah. have very different ones too.
2: Well, they do, um, but yeah. you know, a lot, a lot of a lot of scientists, I think, have tried to explain altruism in selfish terms for animals. That, oh, mm-hmm. they only do this because then if others do it, then the herd is going to be protected. As if, you know, there again, this is part of this whole biological machines issue. And I think that they feel empathy for other creatures and they act in their interest and uh, you see it all the time and i think that that is another really important point they do have moral codes they do have feelings they act on those feelings and many of those feelings are generous feelings and protective feelings
1: yeah and they want to be happy and they want to live in a you know environment that provides enough food and shelter and you know space and they want to raise their children. They want to interact with their friends. They want to have the capacity to make friends and things like that, just like us. And they are, you know, like us in everything that really matters.
0: What do you see as the best way to get people to understand that because these animals feel they have these emotions, they have the spiritual component, that they deserve better protection? How can we evangelize that message Across well, the world,
1: um, I think first just showing that animals are you know other animals non-human animals are capable of doing that is um, you know it just makes us hate them more. Like if someone is, if, my my initial idea was well if we show that they are you know they can live independently they have the same. Uh, needs and the, hem- the same desires, and you know, we get rid of all this uh, stuff that we've accumulated uh, with the dualism and the Cartesian stuff and the dominions and blah blah. blah. And just see them as equal people will people will automatically uh, do that. But it's not quite that simple. I, I I think we need to truly understand where our prejudice comes from. That it's something that we learned. It's not something that, you know, other animals have done or whatever. We don't deserve anything better. Everyone deserves good stuff, right? It's just we need to unlearn that and we need to be comfortable. You know, we need to sort of realize that if someone else has something that doesn't take it away from us necessarily, you know, potentially the world is big enough for everyone, for everyone to be happy and you know, the, the less we kind of compete about things and for things, the happier we will be. So I think it's just beautiful the way that we feel when we do something good. And I think that people know that. I think, you know, deep down people are happy to, to help and uh, to see others happy. And we're just conditioned to 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 run madly around and, you know, trying to be the first and this and that. But if we just slow down a little bit, you know, to see where this brought us, like, you know, we have a devastated planet, everyone's suffering all over the place. Do we really want to live in a world like this? I don't think so.
2: Yeah, I, I, th- I think when, you know, when we interact with animals, especially when people who do harm to animals try to explain what they do, They detract from the animal's characteristics, they minimize um, the things that these animals uh, are and the way they behave. Mm -hmm. And then they try to add to themselves. They try to attach some social benefit to what they are doing. Oh, we're killing kangaroos because the kangaroos are going to starve to death. We're actually helping them by killing the kangaroos. We are, you know, killing these wolves because, oh, the wolves are going to hurt livestock. You know, this is the complexity of our human rationalization, our denial on one hand, and then our selfish explanations on the other hand.
1: And the need, this internal need for consistency, that, that's a fascinating topic that I've just started to read about. You know, again, this is nothing reflective, it's like this deep needs to be internally consistent you know having our actions um, sort of reflect our feelings and in these cases they don't and so people try to rationalize it as you were saying but slaughterhouse workers are an interesting thing like um an example i talk about that too and i was fascinated by that whole phenomenon of you know they're they're suffering you know another victim of the human greed for you know meat and other products and uh And then all this abuse, you know, the the extra abuse, um, the, the, the additional unnecessary, I mean, everything is unnecessary, but that additional violence that happens in the slaughterhouse, I think the more violent those people are, the more they're hurting, you know, because they have to devalue these animals, they have to make them, you know, the worthless and you know strip them of all the dignity of all the subjectivity everything and they have to beat them up and stuff and so that they can you know continue their work because that is and we don't talk about that very much but it's a fact you know the slaughterhouse workers it's a very taxing work physically and psychologically and and communities where they have slaughterhouses you know they have increased rates of violence of all kinds and and um, it's just coming out at last but it's it's um, against uh, something that uh, is a consequence of um, you know the, the life and desires and greed of the privileged populations
0: um and and right now at the top of my my bucket list would be to visit you and David with with a bottle of wine and just Sit at your dinner table, listen to the two of you talk and converse with you. You're both so so fascinating, and um, I'm really really grateful to to have talked to you and uh, to learn from you and um, tell you face to face, Zoom to Zoom, how much I uh, admire uh, your your efforts, um, Wayne. Marty, any closing thoughts from you, good folks?
2: No, I think I think uh, we've covered a lot of ground. Thank you, and Taya, great great to be with you, and thank you so much for. Your contributions uh, in the in the space of publishing and writing—any serious social movement needs thinkers and intellectuals—and and, and uh, your contributions here are really really welcome and appreciated.
1: And same with you. <laughs> we make a great team all together. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you so much.
0: Thank you. All right, and Marty, thank you for being with us again. I appreciate that. We've been talking to Taya Brooks Prybeck, author of *Enter the Animal: Cross Species Perspectives on Grief and Spirituality*. It's a fascinating read. It it, it is heavy lifting, but it is well worth uh, the the deep dive. Uh, into it. Um, And I want to thank you to our listeners too, for just turning into the podcast. Appreciate you being a fan of the animal wellness podcast. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org for all of our news and information and to sign up for our news alerts. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or Spotify. When you do so, give us a A five-star review or an honest review. Hopefully five stars, an honest review, but we would appreciate your feedback. Let us know how we're doing. I've been your host, Joseph Grove, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.